0: Second Peter chapter 1, let's begin reading at verse 11. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things... You will never stumble, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And now I ask that you will open our hearts, that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching of your word. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I especially pray for sons and daughters that have wandered from the faith. I ask that you will draw them back. Don't let one be lost. Thank you for hearing our prayer. We pray today the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As most of you know, just a couple of weeks before Christmas, I was in Germany where I had a uh, meeting of the board of directors for the European Theological Seminary that I serve on, and also was preaching in one of our German churches and spending some time with dear friends in Germany. Well, my itinerary for the trip home. Was to, try, was to fly from Stuttgart to Paris to Atlanta to Jacksonville. Well, the plane from Stuttgart to Paris was delayed several hours, causing me to miss the connecting flight in Paris, forcing me to spend an extra night in a hotel outside the Paris airport. The next morning, I boarded a plane headed for Atlanta. Now, just suppose for a moment... That after we all got in and they closed the doors, pushed away from the gate and taxied down the runway and the pilot got us up in the air, set the course for Atlanta, but just suppose somehow he misjudged his headings and set the course just one degree north of where it was supposed to be. Well, in the beginning of the flight, it wouldn't make much difference. We'd settle in with our seatbelts fastened. We'd eat our meal of airplane food, (laughs) watch our movies, listen to music, play games on the screen. Some passengers would drop off to sleep. Others would catch up on some work. Flight attendants would perform their duties. Now, I'm told that for every single degree you fly off course, you will miss your target landing spot by 92 feet for every mile you fly. That amounts to about one mile for every 60 miles flown. Well, if this pilot somehow got the heading one degree off, That means by the time we were supposed to land in Atlanta, we would be in a world of trouble. Just one degree off course over a distance of over 4,300 miles would place us over 76 miles north of Atlanta without any place to land that thing. By the time we managed to correct the mistake, I would have missed my connection to Jacksonville also. I tell you that story to let you know that you don't have to be a complete heretic in order to miss God's best for your life. Just a slight deviation can cause all kinds of grief. Here's something you need to remember. Your beliefs will determine the way you will act. You're not going to go for very long in a direction contrary to your belief system. And that's a wonderful thing if your belief system is right and straight and true. However, if there is any area where you have a faulty belief system, your life may be smooth and easy for a little while, but the longer you live and the longer you follow that faulty belief system, the further you'll miss the target and the more problems it will create. How many of you have ever heard that a believer is supposed to walk by faith? Sometimes we talk about walking by faith as if it were some kind of mysterious force that moves us along. We talk about it as if it were the sole domain of the super spiritual saints. The truth is, you are already walking by faith. Everybody is walking by faith. In fact, it's impossible not to walk by faith. Walking by faith simply means you function in daily life on the basis of what you believe. Your belief system determines your behavior. If your belief system is faulty, you need a course correction because your spiritual life and your relationship with the Heavenly Father is going to be off. If what you believe in a particular area doesn't line up with what God says about that issue, then your walk of faith will be off to the same degree that your belief system is off. The further you travel offline, the more trouble you'll get into. The trouble is compounded when not only the course you're on is slightly off, but then the winds of adversity come along and push you even further off course. You know, breakdowns occur, storms of life come, trying to navigate in the middle of a storm is already difficult, but it's next to impossible when you begin offline. Now, that brings me to talking about the theme for the message today, your success, And I'm talking to you for this series about a divine perspective on a lot of areas that affect our lives. Today, I especially want to talk about your success. How many of you are passionately pursuing failure as your life's purpose? (laughs) I don't see any hands. Okay. I think it's safe to say that nobody wants to wear the label failure. We all want to be successful. That was weak, but I'll take it. For the balance of this message, I just want to talk to you a little bit. I want to give you some instruction and some information that will help you be successful. Right up front, let me give you three foundational statements about success. Number one, success is directly related to goals. I'm going to repeat them so you can write them down. I didn't put them up on the screen today, but... Number one, success is directly related to goals. Number two, if you're not having success, it just means you're having difficulty reaching your goals in life, regardless of what those goals are. If you're not having success, it means you're having difficulty reaching your goals. Number three, and this this is the most important, if you aren't reaching your goals... It's probably because you're working on the wrong goals. Any goal you have that can be blocked by forces you can't control other than God is not a healthy goal because your success in that arena is out of your hands. Just just leave that up on the screen there for a minute, guys. So that people can see that. I, somebody probably needs to write that down. Put it someplace where you'll see it regularly. Any goal you have that can be blocked by forces you can't control other than God is not a healthy goal. Because your success in that arena is out of your hands. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. You may be a wife and mother who says, my goal in life is to have a loving, harmonious, happy family. You want to know who can block that goal? Every person in your family. Right? If you believe your self-worth is dependent on your family, then you are destined to crash and burn every time your husband or your children fail to live up to your image of family harmony. You're going to wind up a very frustrated, very angry woman. If I, as the pastor of the church, say my goal in ministry is to reach and win this city for Christ, and if my self-worth is dependent upon reaching that goal, then I'm going to experience tremendous emotional turmoil because every person in this city can block my goal. That statement may be a wonderful desire. It may sound really spiritual, but it's not a healthy goal. There's a difference between goals and desires, or at least there ought to be in our thinking. A godly goal is any specific result reflecting God's purpose for your life that does not depend on people or circumstances beyond your ability or right to control. A godly desire is any specific result that depends on the cooperation of other people or the success of events or favorable circumstances you cannot control. According to the testimony of the Word of God, there is no goal God has for your life that is impossible or uncertain. Neither can it be blocked. If you adopt the attitude of cooperating with God's goals for your life, then your goal can be reached. You are guaranteed success. But if you try to base your self-worth on your personal success or, or your personal success on your desires, no matter how godly those desires may be, You're going to be frustrated because you cannot control their fulfillment. Some of your desires can be blocked, some are uncertain, and some, quite frankly, are impossible. When you align your goals with God's goals and your desires with God's desires, then you will rid your life of a lot of heartache and frustration and put yourself on the road to success. See, you you wives cannot guarantee that you will have a happy, harmonious family. Instead, you can decide, I'm going to be the wife and mother God wants me to be. That's a great goal. It's not impossible or uncertain because it's also God's goal for you, and nothing is impossible with God. The only person who can block that goal (laughs) is you. As long as you cooperate with God's goal for your life, your success is assured. Now, when we look at the verses of our text for today... We find the Apostle Peter writing some instructions about how to be successful in achieving godly goals. What we find in this passage is that God's basic goal for your life is character development. That's what God's about with you. His goal is for you to become the person he designed and created and desires you to be. Because this is a godly goal, there is no one who can block it except you. Peter begins his letter by identifying himself as Simon Peter. Simon, you remember, was his name before conversion. The word Simon means unstable. Peter is the name Jesus gives him. The word Peter comes from the word Petrus, which means rock. He wasn't a rock by nature, but Jesus changed his nature. When he identifies himself as Simon Peter, it's as if he's saying, look at me. I used to be unstable until Jesus touched me and changed my nature. Now I'm solid as a rock. He says then, I'm writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind. Think about it. If you're saved, how many saved people am I talking to today? Making sure I'm preaching to the right crowd. Okay. If you're saved, you have the same kind of faith. He calls it like precious faith. You have the same kind of faith as Peter. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see someone vacillating. He doesn't see someone wishy-washy. He doesn't see someone blown about by every wind that comes along. He doesn't see someone unstable. Oh, no. When God looks at you, he sees someone strong. I know you don't see yourself that way, but that's the way God sees you. He sees someone steadfast, solid as a rock. That's how God sees you today. That's who you really are. The question becomes how to get our faith to match up experientially with what God says about us, positionally. How do we turn it from theory into practice? Well, first he tells us that the kind of faith that brings us into alignment with God's goals and produces success is a faith that knows. He writes in verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Of God and of Jesus our Lord. That word knowledge is a prominent word in this letter. That word or some form of it is used nine times in this chapter alone. In this short little book, it's used 16 times. The apostle repeatedly talks about the importance of knowing and knowledge. The word for knowledge in verse two is the word epinosis. Epi is the word from which we get our word epic. Gnosis is the word for knowledge. When you put those two together, epinosis means superknowledge. When Peter talks about the kind of knowledge that is needed to make our faith rock solid so we can be successful, he's not talking about knowledge like, I know this is a piano. Or, I know this is a microphone. Or, I know that I'm in church today. Instead, he's talking about personal knowledge. For example, you may know that Dolly Parton is a country singer. You may have heard her sing and maybe read some articles about her. But do you know her? See Peter isn't talking about intellectual knowledge, he's talking about experiential knowledge, super knowledge. The kind of faith that causes you to succeed isn't built on knowing about Jesus. That's the problem with too many in the church. We spend all our time knowing about Jesus, but precious little time getting to know Jesus. I love the verse in Daniel eleven thirty two 32 that says, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Not the people who know about their God, but the people who know their God. They shall be strong and do exploits exploits, that kind of knowledge, that super knowledge brings with it some pretty important things that Peter then identifies in the next verse. First of all, he says this knowledge brings pardon. He begins verse 2 talking about grace. According to Ephesians 2 and 8, grace is what saved you in the first place. You and I don't deserve the grace of God that leads to salvation, but he freely extends it. You get saved through the grace that leads to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Pardon for sin comes through the knowledge of Jesus. And it isn't just grace, pardon, but knowledge also brings peace. He writes, grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, that's the way it happens. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about peace and grace. And that isn't just for poetic flow. It's always first grace and then peace because you can't know the peace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. You can't have peace with God until your sins are pardoned. First comes peace with God as a result of the work of grace, then comes the peace of God. Knowledge brings pardon, knowledge brings peace, then knowledge brings power. That's verse 3 seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Notice the words, has granted. If you have Jesus, you already have everything you need for a rock-solid faith. Everything you need is in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. God's goal begins with who you are on the basis of what God has already done for you. He has given you, he said, life and godliness. Justification has already happened. You've been born again. Your transgressions are no longer held against you. In addition, sanctification has already begun. You are already a partaker of the divine nature. You have already escaped sin's corruption. How does that sound so far? You're born again. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You've passed from death into life. You've been transported from darkness into light. You're an heir of righteousness. Sin shackles no longer have any hold on you. You're forgiven. You're free. You're changed. You're transformed. You've been brought up out of a horrible pit, the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. Your feet have been placed on a firm footing, the solid rock of Jesus. You've been given a new song to sing. You stopped singing the blues. You stopped singing the funeral dirge in the minor key. You're singing a new song. You're singing a song of victory. You're singing the song of the redeemed. Anybody know what I'm preaching about today? That's what's going on with you. I've been told that when a baby elephant is being trained by the circus people, they put an iron manacle around one of its legs. And there's a chain attached to that manacle and that chain is fastened to an iron bar that is immovable. Chained to that iron bar, the baby elephant rocks back and forth. He tries to break free. But it isn't long before he learns that no matter how hard he tries, there's no possible way he can move that hind leg. Now, when he gets to be an older elephant, they don't put a chain on him anymore. Sometimes it's just a rope. And they don't attach it to an immovable bar. They just put a stake in the ground. This older, stronger elephant could easily pull that stake out of the ground if he wanted to, but he never tries. The reason he doesn't try is because he doesn't think he can. In his mind, it's an impossibility, so he's limited. He isn't limited by facts, he's only limited by his mind, what he thinks. The same thing is true about you and me. See, the me I see is the me I'll be. If you think you're limited, you're limited. But the Bible says when you have true knowledge, then you're going to start understanding something about the real power that you have. When you come to know the Lord, then you begin to understand you're not limited. God has given all things. Somebody say all things. All things things pertaining to life and godliness. It's already yours. But the reason it isn't working is because of the next thing. Knowledge allows us to claim promises. He says in verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The promises are there, but if you don't know the promises, they're not going to do you any good. If you don't know the promises, you can't lay hold of the promise. If you don't lay hold of the promise, then you're not going to have the deliverance God wants you to have. I I wish I had somebody in this house who would dare to claim the promises of God for your life. That would make all the difference if you just started looking and claiming the promises of God for your life. Somebody needs to claim Psalm 37 and 25. I have been young, but now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Somebody needs to claim Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Somebody needs to go ahead and claim Isaiah 54 and 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Somebody ought to claim Joel 2 and 25. Then I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army, which I set among you. Somebody needs to claim Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Claim his promise. Know the promise and claim the promise for your life. Success comes from a faith that knows, but it also comes from a faith that grows. Once you've brought your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ and have received this precious faith, that isn't the end of it, it's just the beginning. The next part, after knowing, is growing. And I want to tell you, the growth is your responsibility. Peter writes here in verse 5 that you are to be diligent about growing. You you want a goal for your life as a believer in Jesus? You'll find it in verses 5 through 7. This is God's goal for you. And here they are. Here's, Here's the things that comprise his character development goals for your life. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, Christian love. Pursue those things. <coughs> Focus on them. Make, make them the dominant theme of your life. Anytime you get sidetracked, anytime you get off course, come back to those seven things. Anytime somebody wants to know your goal in life, here it is. Well, I have a goal of moral excellence, knowledge, self-control. Perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, Christian love. Anytime somebody wants to know what makes you tick, here it is. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, Christian love. Notice in this list there's absolutely no mention of things like talents or intelligence or spiritual giftedness. There's no mention of things like that the people of this world often equate with success. Things like wealth or fame or power. If you're looking for a godly goal for your life, it's wrapped up in character. It begins with virtue. It's translated moral excellence. It's a word that means strength. The Greeks used this word for something that was fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. A horse that was sure-footed and strong was said to have virtue. A field that produced a good crop was said to have, to have virtue. Here the apostle instructs us to pursue virtue as a goal. Fulfill the purpose for which you have been made. You need to know why you're here. The first reason you're here is to give glory to God. That's the... the <laughs> glorify God in your life. In your work, in your pursuits, glorify God. Moral excellence, virtue. Then he says, add to that knowledge. Now, this this word is different from the earlier word for knowledge. That word earlier, you remember, meant super knowledge, and it talked about personal knowledge. The word here is talking about practical knowledge. In other words, he's talking about studying and learning and developing and growing in information and understanding. He says, to your virtue... Pursuing the purpose and fulfilling the purpose to which God has called you. Add knowledge. In other words, study to know something about that so that you understand how to fulfill that purpose. Then he says add temperance. That's self-control. I think we need a ton of that in this earth today. Self-control. Control. Control over your temper. Control over your appetite. Control over your habits. Control over your language. Add virtue, add knowledge, add temperance. Then we then we are to add patience. Don't you wish he hadn't put that one in there? <laughs> this idea of patience has two prongs to it. First it has to do with enduring the trivial things. You know, traffic jams. Lost keys. Long lines. Late airplanes. Flat tires, interruptions, those kinds of things. Patience in that. Uh, uh, uh. By the way, the Bible, one of the, one of the worst prayers you can pray is, Lord, give me patience. You know? Because the Bible says tribulation works patience. So the only way you know you have patience is if you have something happen for which you need patience. Patience. The only way to develop it is to exercise it, and that means more stuff to deal with. So that's one prong. The second part of this idea of patience has to do with bearing up under persecution. See, those early believers understood what it meant to face real persecution. The place to which the Lord is calling us today is to position ourselves in such a way that we are prepared if persecution comes our way. Here's something I've learned, and, and quite frankly, I'm still learning about enduring and developing patience. Watch this. See see how this fits for you. <clears throat> if the trouble, my, if the trouble I'm, I'm having comes from God, then the proper response is to praise him because nothing but good comes from God. So praise him. But, Pastor, what if the trouble is coming from the devil? Well, the proper response is still to praise God. Right. Because... If the devil sees that what he's doing is causing me to praise God, he certainly doesn't want me praising, so he'll stop what he's doing that's causing the praise. And if for some reason it doesn't cause him to stop bringing the trouble, praise will then build a wall that he can't get through, and you'll be insulated from his devices. Then, then we're told to add godliness. i got to hurry on. That's simply godlikeness. Godlikeness. Add brotherly kindness. That means love for the brethren. The greatest evidence that you're a follower of Jesus is that you are full of loving kindness and gentleness. I'm telling you, this church and this world is full of people who need your brotherly kindness. There are people with broken homes, people with broken hearts, people who've suffered divorce, people who've lost a loved one to death, people who are sick, people who are lonely. People in financial distress, they need your brotherly kindness. And finally, he says, to add love. This is that agape love, a love that reaches to all people with the love of Jesus. See, you don't have to like what they do. You can still love them. See, love says, I may not like what you do, but I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Instead, I'm going to give you what you need. That's the love of God, and it's expressed through people just like you and me. Those are some worthwhile goals that you can set. And when you pursue those goals, you can succeed because the only person who can block those goals is you. Y'all doing okay? I'm, all right, I'm, 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 I'm circling the field to, air, to land this thing, okay? I may circle two or three times before I find the right spot, but I'm, I just want you to know that I, I see the landing spot. There's a faith that knows, there's a faith that grows. One more thing about this faith that helps you succeed, it's a faith that shows. The success you are promised as you pursue these godly goals for your life shows itself in three ways according to what Peter writes. Number one, he says you are no longer barren. He says it this way in verse 8, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. When you pursue these character traits as your goal, you can begin to expect your life to be fruitful. You can expect your faith to help people love Jesus more. You can expect people to come to Jesus as a result of your witness. You can expect the cause of Christ to move forward. This is the outcome of adding these qualities to your faith, to your life. You'll be a fruitful follower of Jesus. Number two, he says, you're no longer blind. Verse 9 says that the one who lacks these things is blind. What does that mean? It means he doesn't see the glory that belongs to the children of God. He has forgotten what happened to him when Jesus saved him and brought him up out of the pit and gave him a new heart and a new life. Adding these qualities to your growing faith will keep you in remembrance of the great grace you have received. You know, every now and then, I just have to stop and remember, I'm saved because of the grace of God. I didn't deserve it. I don't earn it. I'm not that good. You know, I get to stand up here and preach every Sunday morning. But I'm not this, I'm I'm not really that good. It's only God's grace. It's only God's grace. But that's what keeps me anchored. And that's what keeps me settled and secure in my faith. That's what lets me know I am saved. It's not because I am able to somehow follow the right path and keep all the right rules and do all the right things and don't do the wrong things. I mean, it's, it's because of God's grace. Yes. We used to sing a song in old church that said, it's real, it's real. Oh, I know it's real. Praise God, the doubts are settled. And I know, I know it's real. See, that's how I know. It's the knowledge of the word that comes alive in my heart through the grace of the Lord Jesus. You're no longer barren. You're no longer blind. Finally, number three, you're no longer bewildered. Verse 10 talks about making certain his calling and choosing you. Making certain. I know he's called me. There's the witness of the spirit in my life. As you add these qualities to your life, every doubt will disappear. You'll know that you know that you know that you're saved. Moral excellence or virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, Christian love. Pursuing these character traits as the goal of your life will result in success, real success. See, verse 10 promises you will never stumble. Problem so many followers of Jesus are having is that they've adopted the world system of success. The things they're pursuing aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves. They're just off course from God's view of what constitutes real success. See, they've decided success is achieving the ability to retire early or reaching the top of the corporate ladder or having worldwide name recognition they expend all their energies in pursuit of these goals. Some of them even achieve those things and manage to become successful in the eyes of the world. They've reached the pinnacle of their career. They have all the toys. They have all the recognition. But they're empty. When they finally take time to stop and look around one day, they ask themselves, is this all there is? Because that kind of so-called success doesn't really satisfy. When you start looking to develop the character goals God has put before you, you start focusing on moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and Christian love. When you make those things your primary goal in life, you will be useful. You will be fruitful. You will never stumble regardless of what life throws your way. Nobody can stand in your way. If you pursue these truths, these truths, You are guaranteed success. Guaranteed. That's God's perspective on your success. That's the divine view. Pursue those things. And he says, nobody can stand in your way. Stand with me, please. You've been so patient to let me get through all of that. That was a lot, wasn't it? I'll try to shorten it next week <laughs> let's finish this up this way I, I have a burden on my heart today. I have a burden for those that are just going through the motions, but you're not really plugged into God. Your zeal is waned, your passion is cooled you, you you've gotten off course not not by much. you're not bad people I mean you you just off course a little bit. You know, I use this illustration sometimes. I I didn't have the courage to do it today because I haven't been been playing golf much. But I've been known to actually bring in some little foam golf balls and hit them off the stage back into the media booth. (laughs) Here's what I've discovered. When you go to... You know, the the idea in hitting the golf ball is you want the face, the club face, to be square to the ball. If it's off just a little bit, you know, if you only hit the ball 50 yards, probably going to be okay. But if you hit that ball 250 yards, well, you're going to be in the trap. You're going to be in the water, going to be in the weeds, you might even be out of bounds. See, I understand that because I see, when I play golf, I see a part of the course that few people even know exists. <laughs> but that's the way our life is. We, we start out and we're, we're off just a little bit. Not gonna be a big deal. But the further we travel, if we're not careful, we're gonna wind up out of bounds. We're gonna be in a world of hurt. So I'm talking to people, you've gotten off course, not by much, but, but the longer you travel on this trajectory, the more difficult it's going to be. So here's what I believe. Today the Lord is calling some people to return to Him. Return with all your heart. Here's the Lord's invitation. Is Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Bow with me, please.